Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today are Austin Bay and Al Nofi, both associate editors at strategypage.com. Dr. Nofi is the author of over 20 books, designer and researcher for multiple war games, and the author of our popular CIC section. Colonel Bay is an author, columnist, and military analyst. His latest book, Cocktails from Hell, Five Complex Wars Shaping the 21st Century, is available on Amazon. Austin also blogs on Instapundent.com. Alan Austin, uh, welcome this morning. Thought we'd uh, do a extra strategy talk. Um, we had an in- interesting incident in December where we had uh, General Math- Mattis resign. Al, this isn't the first time that uh, American presidents have had problems with their generals, right? Yes. Um, Dan, let's make a, a, a point there, though. General Mattis wasn't serving as a general. He was Secretary of Defense. He had a civilian slot. Now, that said, everybody thought of him as a general because right. that's what he was. I'm just making that so that somebody doesn't say he, he resigned as a as a military officer, he resigned as Secretary of Defense. It's it's just a it's a it's a technicality in this case because everybody knows Jim Mattis is a Marine general. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But. And and pretty much his uh, his uh, generals there, at, uh, chief of the chiefs of staff, uh, were in line behind him and how he thought and and what his uh, thinking was. So okay, I, okay, I, I, mean, think, I didn't mean to interrupt Al. I know that's what all right. Gonna, no, Go ahead, that, Al. That that uh, that gives us a good intro. Um, uh, of course, one of the president's main jobs is, uh, is national security and national defense, and that means, uh, especially in the past, he had to interact with the generals uh, directly because the, the civilian apparatus of the defense establishment was extraordinarily small. Um, it's only in the uh, in the period since World War II that. Um, uh, it's, it's unusual to see a picture of the president sitting down and talking strategy with his generals. Um, we certainly can think of it in pictures of Lincoln and FDR, for example. Uh, but way back in the early days, quite literally, it was the president issuing orders directly to people in the field. Uh, as during the War of 1812, for example. Right. And, Al, that was uh, one of the reasons for that was there, unless there was a war going on, as in the Civil War, there was no war department, Right. Well, there was a War Department, but it was uh, uh, very small. Uh, I think the War Department's um, total number of non-military personnel in the War Department at the time, at the beginning of the Civil War, was was maybe a hundred. Most of them were clerks administering this or administering that. Uh, But uh, very early, there was, uh, you know, there was basically the Secretary of War, and a couple of assistants who are literally secretaries, and uh, and pretty much everything. In fact, the president and the secretary of war signed commissions directly, right through to the Civil War, when it became a rather more difficult job to sign everybody's commissions instead. Uh, but you know, going back to George Washington's day, I mean, when George Washington became president, the army was barely a thousand men. Um, so it was pretty easy to sign 20 or 30 commissions, uh, you know, over the course of a couple of years. Uh, the first guy to give a president, uh, Suris, 
to use the Yiddish phrase, was James Wilkinson. And uh, it's a shame this guy isn't better known in American history. Uh, he, uh, he was, well, he was in the army for a very long time. Uh, he, uh, he marched with uh, Montgomery as a, as a young volunteer up to uh, uh, Quebec in the, in the fall and winter of uh, 1775, and then in the desperate battle for Quebec City on, on, New Year, on Christmas Eve. <clears throat> and... Um, no, I'm sorry, New Year's Eve, and ended the Revolutionary War with a brevet as a brigadier general, and of course was then, you know, since the army was disbanded, uh, you know, he was tossed out on the street, so to speak. During the 1790s, um, he, uh, he was involved in speculation in the West and made, uh, made some contacts with the Spanish government of, of what is now Louisiana. Uh, and then when the Quasi War with France came up, he was brought back in the army and ended up as a brigadier general. Meanwhile, he was on the Spanish payroll. We, we don't actually know how many years he was on the Spanish payroll, but uh, he was getting about 2,000 bucks a year. Now, that's, that's 1790-something bucks. Uh, you know, that, that, was, that was a, an extraordinary amount of money. And... Uh, well, you don't. You can't fault his personal courage. He was absolutely incompetent as a commander. Uh, after the Quasi War with France ended, uh, George Washington apparently didn't have much use for him, but he had to give him a commission for the Quasi War. George was uh, out of office at that time; he's no longer president. But Congress had made him uh, commander in chief of the army, with um, Alexander Hamilton as as his, uh, his kind of chief of staff. Uh, so when the uh, Quasi War ended and the army was disbanded, Wilkinson ended up as the senior officer in the U.S. Army, which was only a couple thousand guys in those, you know, by 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 eighteen three, and uh, he was in command when we took over uh, Louisiana from the French, uh, and uh, because of his his real estate connections and whatnot. He decided to build an army camp in this swamp that some friend of his own, because it would help his friend make a few bucks. So about half the troops died of, of uh, yellow fever and uh, malaria and everything else. And, uh, and he was in he was in treasonous correspondence with the Spanish for m more than a decade. And, at least as late as the War of 1812, which technically means he really was a traitor, since in 1812 the, uh, the Spanish were allied with the British. Uh, although we were we were kind of polite about not, um, you know, not directly invading Florida. Um, although um, since we weren't at war with Spain, and so he uh, he was several times court-martialed. Uh, Winfield Scott, who was a very young officer in those days, uh, actually was well was caught martial for calling for saying that if if he if he had one bullet left in the battle he'd use it on Wilkinson. Uh, called him an unprincipled imbecile. And John Randolph, because he's one of the he's one of sort of the junior founders, uh, the kinsman of um, President Jefferson. 
said from bark to bite, from bark to the very core, he's a villain. Amazingly, he never was convicted by court-martial. He was court-martialed several times. They never could pin anything on him. Uh, and he eventually, uh, after bungling uh, the invasion of Canada in 1813, he was put on a shelf. And although he kept trying to, he was involved in Burr's conspiracy too, although we don't know exactly what was going on there either. Uh, this guy was a real treat. <laughs> uh, 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 listen, listen, we, Al says we don't know what was going on vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Aaron Burr's uh, conspiracy, yes. but it was like maybe we're tur uh, turning uh, any claims to uh, Flor uh, Florida or Louisiana or he's selling all to the uh, 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 to the Spaniards. It's unclear, but it's unsavory, too. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Maybe that's the good word to use. Well, why did Jefferson not just cashier him? Well, it's very difficult. Um, the early army uh, was very political. I mean, that comment the other day, you know, about whether there are Republican judges or Democratic judges, well, they really were uh, sort of uh, Jeffersonian judges and, and Federalist judges. Uh, I mean, generals, officers even. I mean, even low-ranking officers. Um, there was, a, you know, uh, there was no formal process of, you know, becoming an officer. So basically, you got you got somebody to uh, to approach the president, and uh, you know he'd appoint you. And well, look, Wilkinson was from Pennsylvania, and yeah. he was in Jefferson's party, what the Democratic Republican Party. Yeah. That the, the, I, the name of it. I think it was he the was Republican was Democratic a, Party. But I'm yeah, sorry, Republican Democrat. Okay, you you know what I'm saying. I yeah. just I just yeah. flipped it, but the, he was uh, regarded as a. Uh, a, a, pol a political supporter yeah. and from a key state, Pennsylvania, but then uh, he's fine. He was regarded as that. It's still uh, jaw-dropping that uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't sack him for yeah. some of the things he did and that James Madison didn't either. Now, this, yeah. is, this is something I happen to think, and if Al disagrees with it, he'll tell me. There was a shortage of individuals that would stand up are perceived to be a shortage of individuals who could handle senior leadership positions in the American military as small as it was. Yes. Uh, that's that's a perception. Yes. I, I really don't think it was that short, but you know, here's Wilkinson saying, hi, I'm a general. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's true. That's, that's part of the problem. Uh, I mean, it was really OJT. And so he had come out of the Revolutionary War uh, as a successful battalion commander with a brevet for a brigadier. And uh, so we, we need to, um, you know, when we need to raise an army in, in, in the Quasi War, he's an obvious candidate. And, yet, and remember, you had to spread it out. I mean, today nobody really thinks about whether, uh, you know, uh, on the promotion list, you know, when the list of guys comes up for promotion to general, nobody thinks about, well, you know, we need we need to have one guy from New York and one guy from, you know, Montana. and one. But in those days, they were really, you know, I mean, mem the members of the congressional delegations would want to know why, you know, why our state doesn't have a, a general or a colonel, you know, uh, depending on the size of the armies. And this guy, you know, was politically well connected. Uh, God knows what he did with his money. But uh, over the years, there's one estimate that um, 
the equivalent money he, he got from the Spanish is easily $12 million. You know, I mean, in, in, in current day money. And that's at the lowest possible conversion rate. You know, I mean, because there's various ways of, of calculating that. Nobody knows what he did with his money. Uh, but he probably spread some of it around, you know, to, to friends and relatives. So, you know, he gave somebody a hundred bucks in those days. That was a, that was more than a year's pay for the average American who, who was a working man, as opposed to a farmer. Uh, so that that did that, and he apparently knew how to do the paperwork, and he did do some. This is, sounds crazy, but he did do some positive stuff. Uh, when um, when the Seven Years' War ended. These things get really complicated sometimes. Uh, France ceded Louisiana to Spain. Now that you know the the this, the area between Spanish Mexico and French Louisiana, the territory in between, basically Texas, uh, was almost totally unpopulated in those days. So neither country had paid much attention to delineating a, a boundary between the two uh, territories. And then once the Spanish took over, of course, it became irrelevant as to whether there was a boundary. So when we buy Louisiana, uh, suddenly the question of where's the boundary comes up, and there's various arguments back and forth. And um, uh, Wilkinson... Well, you, you, you need to tell, tell say how the French got control of the mouth of Mississippi River. Well, well, basically, uh, Napoleon swiped it from the Spanish by giving them Tuscany. Okay, gave, you, you got that, Dan? They're, they're trading Tuscany yeah. for uh, Louisiana. So. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, but the deal gets very complicated, actually, because uh, there was potential for uh, uh, war with the, the Spanish and French, but particularly the Spanish Louisianans, because under the agreement that Napoleon made with Spain, uh, Spain would get first refusal if Napoleon chose to dispose of Louisiana. And not only did Napoleon not consult them in disposing of Louisiana, but he took back Tuscany. So that, um, uh, believe it or not, I mean, this sounds totally crazy, uh, Jefferson alerted the militia, using the Militia Act of 1795, alerted the militia in Tennessee, I think, and... Ohio, I think Ohio was already a state. Uh, no, Ohio wasn't already a state. Tennessee and Kentucky for sure. But he alerted the militia for possible duty in Louisiana should armed resistance develop. Because the, the regular army was only like four or 5,000 guys. And you know, at most you were going to get maybe a couple of hundred down to Louisiana when we took it over. But anyway, once we took it over, there was no resistance. And at Wilkinson is appointed governor. And of course, he, he kills off his, half his command. But he does negotiate a deal with the Spanish governor of Texas that they won't argue over the border, you know, the disputed territory. What they do is they, they made an agreement that both sides would patrol it so that there would be no, you know, criminal gangs hanging out there and, uh, and you know, in case future slaves were wandering around in the place. Uh, and that agreement lasted until 1812, the War of 1812. Uh, 
when, um, uh, of course, the uh, uh, with Spain on the on the other side of uh, on the British side, we decided we were going to occupy the area. And uh, of all people, uh, this gets really funny. Uh, Major Wollstonecraft. Major Wollstonecraft was the uncle of Mary Shelley, and he was an officer in the U.S. Army. And he actually was the guy who, who began, once Mexico, Mexican Revolution occurs at the same time that we go to war with Britain. So uh, he moves into the, uh, uh, the disputed territory and basically establishes U.S. control. But anyway, so Wilkinson eventually, uh, after bungling and bungling and bungling, is tossed out of the army. Uh, and uh, frankly, the army the, the army began the War of 1812 with too many old guys. I think the average age of generals was was something like 60. And ended the war, the average age of the generals was something like 28. There were only six left. But he is, uh, because of his correspondence with Spain during the War of 1812, he certainly qualifies as a traitor. On, under the constitutional definition, you know, I mean, people throw the word around all the time, of course, but but under the constitutional definition, he was in in, uh, in collaboration with an enemy of the United States in time of war and never got punished for it. I think it was Robert Leakey who uh, wrote his epitaph, a man who never won a battle nor lost the court martial. <laughs> well, let's fast. Let's, Dan, let me talk okay. a couple of things on it. You, 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 the, the takeaway here is that Jefferson... Uh, saw him as uh, something of a political asset, which is what ja uh, uh, Al said, given the, the way the, that politics, interstate politics in the United States uh, a, a, a existed at the time. Yeah. He also, he, he, when, when I said, what, what did I describe him as? <laughs> well, unscrupulous, un, unsavory, you know, but uh, he, he was extremely sneaky, and very good at what I'll call narrative warfare, which I, you know, it's, uh, the, Wilkinson was a one-man cocktail from hell. Uh, one of the things he tried to do, supposedly, even though Al, I don't think this was ever pinned on him, was to get Kentucky to secede. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Yeah. Yes, yes, no, I know it's an, alleg uh, yeah. it's, it's an allegation. There's a story, and I, uh, I, I, I read this, a long time ago, but are there versions of it now you can find on the on the web that, that this, the Spaniards were sending him either two or three thousand pieces of silver, whatever else, yeah. uh, and uh, it, the, the the messenger bringing it and there were silver coins was was hijacked by some uh, other criminals with him who happened to be uh, uh, Spaniards and hijacked and, and and murdered, and some of these guys were actually captured, but they couldn't be deposed because they didn't speak English. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they're just these kind of weird stories. I, I think there's you know enough evidence for something like that, uh, a close call where he would he would have uh, been uh, been caught. Maybe one of the reasons he got away with what he got away with in Louisiana is because the Spaniards regarded him as, as their agent. That's possible. But after the after the War of 1812 and where he is dropped. You know where he goes and where he dies? Can you name it? Mexico City. Mexico City, yes. He dies in Mexico City. Yes. 
So why well, he was wangled he, a, he wangled a uh, post as um, U.S. minister or something? Uh, he's but he's he's in Mexico City. Yeah. That's where he goes. Yeah. And uh, one other th one other conspiracy is that he told the Spanish that Lewis and Clark's expedition was underway, yes. and the Spaniards sent out uh, patrols to try to intercept them and, and murder them. Yes, uh, and they they, they it, it didn't happen. But th that that's really maybe it's not treason in quote unquote time of war, but that is that's a hanging offense is what it is. Well, uh, it's what he's done. <laughs> so welcome to Mr. Wilkinson. Would you say there's friction between him and his presidents? Yeah, that, that would be true. Well, let's fast forward uh, <clears throat> a couple of decades and uh, land in uh, with Abraham Lincoln and uh, George McClellan. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of skip over uh, and maybe go back some other time to Polk uh, and his generals. Right. Yeah, because um, Lincoln, Lincoln and his generals is interesting. First of all, of course, the U.S. Army you know, only had four generals of the line since, um, technically speaking, the, uh, um, the quartermaster general was literally a brigadier general, was, was ranked as a brigadier general, but only for the time he held that position. Uh, but there were only four uh, generals of the line when the Civil War began, and um, two of them were older than the Constitution, uh, General Scott and uh, General Wool. And, of course, General Scott um, uh, was physically unfit to command the army, uh, although there was nothing wrong with his brain. General Wool uh, actually did command troops. He did rather well, uh, considering the fact that he was in his 70s. And then the other two guys, I think the youngest of them had joined the army uh, prior to the War of 1812. So, uh, and there were, there were only, I think, four guys in the entire country who commanded as many as 5,000 men. And of course, uh, two of them were, were among the, the, uh, the superannuated generals. And one of them was... Uh, uh, Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, and the other was a guy who had uh, risen to, to a division command during the war, the Mexican War, and uh, commanded uh, quite a number of troops in the campaign. I can't think of his name now, as a volunteer officer. Uh, and actually, he did come back on duty during the Civil War, but uh, he didn't do much. So you had to find generals in a hurry. And um, uh, so in Lincoln's case, of course, uh, there's the story that Robert E. Lee was offered command of the Union armies, which is not true. Uh, General Scott did offer him command of the army that was to be concentrated in Virginia. This is before Virginia secession, of course. And uh, they sweetened the pot by promoting uh, Lee to full colonel of the, uh, the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. He'd only been lieutenant colonel. And he took his, uh, he renewed his oath of allegiance uh, while Fort Sumter was, was um, on the blockade and then uh, resigned from the army after the firing on Fort Sumter. So, uh, so technically uh, he violated his oath, even though he resigned from the army. The fact is he resigned from the army after the war had begun. So um, that's sort of like George Patton deciding to join the Japanese army after Pearl Harbor. You know? <laughs> Well, that isn't going to happen. That isn't going to happen. With that ain't going to happen, but you know, it's true. And uh, so you have to find generals. Now, who are you going to find? Well, uh, 
you know, you got some guys who are famous, so we'll pick them out. Uh, General Scott uh, picked McDowell, since McDowell seemed to be a capable guy. The problem with McDowell was uh, he uh, he was a capable guy, but he'd, he'd been sitting in his butt in, office, in the War Department for years and years and years. Uh, so that thing wasn't going to help. Uh, the other problem was that um, these guys' last combat experience, even the most experienced of them, was in Mexico. And um, the introduction, you know, the, the rifle had begun to, you know, be, be used in Mexico, but the mass use of rifles and, uh, and more modern artillery and whatnot uh, is going to change warfare tremendously. And, and there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of learning going on, and it's going to cost lives. Uh, so you end up, of course, you have to hand out, Lincoln has to hand out generalships uh, to the most able people. Benjamin Butler happens to be one of the most able people. I know, you know, his reputation is, is in the pits, but uh, if you look at what Ben Butler did in the first weeks of the war, you can't fault him. I mean, he, uh, he managed the transfer of troops through Maryland to Washington, uh, bypassing Baltimore. He then blockaded Baltimore, occupied the city without firing a shot because they were concerned there was rioting by, uh, by working class uh, Baltimoreans. And he got some of the first troops to, um, uh, to Washington. He opened up the rail line eventually. Uh, you know, he wasn't good at the higher, you know, issues of, of, of commanding in battle, but he, he certainly knew how to manage some stuff. So you're going to give him a commission. Um, in fact, I think he got the first, he may have gotten the first, uh, one. Of, he certainly got one of the first major generalships handed out. Then you find the other senior officers getting the jobs done. And um, a guy like Butler is important because he's a Democrat. And in fact, he was a supporter of Jefferson Davis in Democratic Convention and probably voted for Davis. Um, hey, hey, look, Fremont, Fremont, because he's a name, is, is brought in. It, as you're pointing out, it was kind of scattergun. Yeah, and 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 in some ways, you're just taking a shot on somebody's got a name, and because there are very few people with experience, and that's that's I think that Al's point here, Dan, is is lost by a, a lot of historians because they look look and say, okay, well, this guy never mounted up, this other guy never mounted up. Uh, Butler is regarded as a mediocrity, but you know he managed to stay in the war through most of, most of the war, still commanding something, but he was somebody else's subordinate. Now we come to McClellan, and this is the question is, is, why was McClellan finally selected to lead the Army of the Potomac, Al? Why? Uh, um, all right, McClellan had made a name for himself uh, as an able officer. Um, he, he actually served with Lee in Mexico. You know, the, when Lee was going out on these patrols, like when he found the uh, pass around the Mexican flank at uh, Chiro Gordo, uh, McClellan was there. So he was, you know, he, he certainly was reasonably capable. And um, he'd also been uh, one of the U.S. observers to the uh, Crimean War and written an extensive report. 
so when um, when once McDowell failed that um, uh, first bull run, uh, Scott picked them. Scott found them. You know, he was he was very high ranking in his class. At, he was a boy genius. He was he was admitted to uh, West Point at fifteen. He was an intellectual, among other things, and he had yeah. some political talents, yeah. at least for for uh, schmoozing with yes. uh, senior political leaders. Now, I, yeah. That makes it sound negative, but he was good at that. Yeah, and he had had some, some minor successes, uh, you know, here and there in the war, so it looked good. Now, he was a brilliant organizer. You know, I mean, he, 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 he put together the Army of the Potomac and its basic structure that remained with, with some changes through the war. And he, had, he certainly had the ability to inspire the troops. I mean, it's rather amazing. Uh, the problem is, I can't remember what, what General said it, but, uh, 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 you know, in order to be a great general, you have to destroy what you love. You know, and he built this brilliant army, but he could never figure out how to use it. Because how to use it would have meant committing it to be destroyed, you know, uh, uh, you know committing your troops to be killed. Uh, I, I, let me let me put it in, in a way. This is I, I, there are things about McClellan, and I, I said here because most of my military experience, especially in reserves, was as a a staff officer, and I did a lot of logistics. He was a very good logistician. Yes. But that goes into into building the army, but not wanting to risk it. Yes. That, I think it is the way I would put it, and that's frustrating Lincoln immensely. Yeah. That, that, there's, there's, I think, Dan, is the friction point on, yeah. uh, on him. And, and Al has much said that, but he's he's cut this. Yeah, and listen, by the, by the time um, McClellan is, is putting this together, you're starting to already get the effects of union uh, manufacturing and manpower superiority. Yes. And I, he, he understands that. He's got that part, part down. Uh, yeah. But he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get out there and tangle with Bobby Lee. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I mean, he's maneuvering. He get he gets he gets. Uh, uh, I mean, the uh, the Peninsula campaign is this brilliant concept. It's great. It's a great idea. Yeah. It's but, right in line with the, the Anaconda plan that, that yeah. Scott has too. You know? Yeah, and you know, he he gets within six miles of uh, of Richmond, and actually, he probably could have taken Richmond if he if he hadn't been hoodwinked. By uh, Magruder in in uh, at Yorktown, you know where where Magruder put up this uh, this facade of a, of a extensive fortifications that uh, when in fact there was virtually nothing blocking him, and he wasted a month trying to uh, uh, develop uh, siege lines and whatnot to break through Magruder's defense line, and finally Magruder just you know was ordered out of it because. Uh, sufficient army had concentrated around Richmond. And Lincoln's, Lincoln's perception of this, and he's not the only one, I mean, there's the yeah. northern press on this, is that McClellan dawdled. And McClellan yeah. would still got, even though he was still remained popular because he was with a, 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 a vast swath of the Union, union yeah. public, because he was so, he was intelligent and so uh, politically adept, but yeah. you know he he wasn't he, he didn't push it he didn't push it and so yeah. Lincoln's looking for somebody who will push it but we have friction with the next guy 
who might have pushed it. I'm, yeah, I'm moving to Joe Hooker, Al. Yeah. So why don't you pick up yeah. on Hooker? Well, Hooker, uh, Hooker took the army after uh, Burnside had uh, just really made a mess. Although Burnside, to be fair, when he was appointed to the job, said, you know, he really didn't want to do this because he didn't think he was capable of doing it. And in fact, he was right. Uh, but uh, uh, what Hooker did was Hooker uh, reorganized the army, developed an intelligence system service, which had been hit and miss before that. He, he developed what would become actually an extraordinarily effective intelligence service that we're still trying to figure out, you know, we're just beginning to learn how, how good it was. Um, but uh, Hooker's problems, well, he was arrogant, but then so was um, McClellan. Uh, he, he was kind of really outspoken about uh, making joke. I don't think he actually really wanted to become dictator, but he made a joke about it, which was not a good idea. He, you know, he joked about it, I guess. Um, and, of course, Lincoln uh, Lincoln's comment was... Um, uh, you 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 risk the battle and I'll risk the dictatorship or something like that, you know. Um, and uh, when he came to it again, an extraordinarily able logistic uh, manager, he made this brilliant plan for uh, uh, Chancellorsville, and uh, and in fact the, uh, the plan worked perfectly. In fact, they worked better than expected initially because it turned out that part of Lee's army was was down in uh, uh, eastern Virginia, down near Norfolk. Uh, a couple of divisions were down near Norfolk, so Lee's army was even weaker than than expected. Um, but the implementation of the plan didn't work out very well. Uh, there's several ways of looking at it. Uh, Jackson's famous counter, you know, uh, counterattack, flanking attack, uh, did uh, did unhinge the Union right. But uh, within hours, the, a proper line had been established, and and uh, Lee was still enormously outnumbered, and his army now divided into three parts, and um, and Hooker was he was not wounded, but he was standing on a porch of a building there and a shell hit the building and he was uh, he was knocked unconscious probably suffered a concussion and nobody on his staff thought to to notify the second in command and say that the general you know is dazed and looks um you know doesn't look good he wasn't fit for duty is what he it was no longer fit for duty now you know he 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 when he when he came to he he clearly he would later admit he had lost his confidence. Meanwhile, of course, that meant that the army was now leaderless. And so it, it, it basically withdrew from the position um, when, in fact, it had suffered at most a, a local, in effect, a, lo a major but local tactical um, defeat where, where in a situation where the it still had enough resources to have gone back. So in a way, he was sort of just like um, McClellan. You know, McClellan during the seven days, McClellan win, tactically wins every one of those battles, more or less. But after every battle, he retreats. 
Let's let's give you know here, here's this is getting in the weeds a bit on this, but uh, Hooker's probably in shock. I'm, yeah, I'm, I say highly likely shocked and, and dazed and didn't and, you quite know, know what to do, and so the, his commanders of course didn't quite know what to do. Now yeah. one of one of the things that I I think we should bring out is that Lincoln is sending these guys letters directly and yes. and giving them uh, telling him what his he didn't necessarily talk about troop dispositions and like that, but he talked about overall strategy that he wanted accomplished, right? And he wants his, and he works in his political goals because you know that's this. He's trying to keep the union together. Think yeah. about that, guys. That's what yeah. it's going to take. Now, I'm sorry, Alan. I was going to make a point about something else going on. Uh, look, here we're concentrating on the Army of the Potomac, and that's the critical uh, critical theater. But what's going on in uh, – it was. That's where, you know, Virginia is right on top of Washington. Yeah. But uh, out west, you've got this guy named Ulysses S. Grant that starts taking it to the south. You know, Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson. It's not always – and then, you know, Island Number <coughs> 10 and all the yeah. – going – Going into the South. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's he's got. Yeah, there's some defeats, or Shiloh, whatever you know, whatever yeah. Shiloh is, a massive uh, 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 bloodletting. But he stays at it. And there's another character working with him who has a national reputation for just being brilliant, even though he's. You know, also supposedly crazy, yeah. and that William Tecumseh Sherman, who figures out, figures out. Wait a minute, Grant knows how to lead uh, a large formations, and he understands what our situation is. He understands the uh, economic uh, uh, com uh, component of how we've got to defeat the South. Remember, Sherman had been one of his jobs is that he was president of whatever the I think it was Louisiana Seminary, it was called, which was Louisiana the military cemetery, cemetery, which becomes Louisiana State University. Yes. Ultimately, I mean, he knew he knew the South. One of his first deployments after West Point, it was in Georgia. Uh, so he and, Georgia he, better than the Confederates. Yes, <laughs> he knew, he, of course he did. And here's 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 Sherman, who's OK. Whatever Ulysses rep was, this guy can do it. And yeah. that's what that's when we get back. Here's he'll initiate, Dan, and this is something Lincoln knows he needs. I mean, talking about Grant, you know, you know, buy everybody a case of whatever he drinks. I like him. He fights. Yeah. yeah the uh, um, the other thing about Grant that's very important. Um, Hooker, McClellan kept complaining about political interference in the army. You know. Lincoln had to hand out generalships to certain people. Uh, some people, you know, were politically well-connected. And uh, so, you know, like a guy like McClernand, who, uh, who was a very, who was a war Democrat, uh, opposed abolition, but was extremely important because he was a unionist. And uh, um, McClellan or Hooker would give him an argument. Well, in, in, in fact, Hooker resigns be, because he doesn't get the reinforcements he believes he needs before he meets Lee's troops. Yeah. 
Right. So, I, I mean, that that's one of the parallels with not that I would ever compare Hooker to uh, General Mattis, Mattis being a much better man than Hooker, uh, but that they finally get to a point where there's a dispute that they can't agree on or come to a compromise on, and Hooker walks away. Yeah. You see, that's, that is what a, an American military officer should do. I, I, that's that's the deal. If you can't, you can't handle what the president is telling you to do or wants you to do, then you, you and you you, you then, then resign. Don't go to the press either. You know, yeah. but it's you, you do this. Look, Hooker was a good subordinate. Yes. Look what he does at Lookout Mountain. But yep. Grant's in charge, and McClellan's problem is he's a logistician. And I'm using that as if that sounds negative, I don't mean to sound negative. He's somebody that you need, to, you know, building and supplying uh, your armies. And then occasionally, as Al pointed out, he understands uh, uh, maneuvering and, and, and tactical engagement. But he didn't he didn't understand what Grant was supposed to have summed up. And this is according to, uh, to Sherman says, I'll take care of Bobby Lee. While you basically slice through the South, you know, exactly. he was going to sit there and hold Bobby Lee uh, to Richmond, and then uh, Sherman's going to go, you know, tear tear up the South and tear it up economically, and and then bring, and, and we'll get this war over. That, that's a strategist who also understands what he's got to do tactically and operationally. So yeah. Lincoln finds his man, but his man here's here's the other thing too. Around July 4th, 1863, North gets two great victories, Gettysburg and also Vicksburg. And Gettysburg was a response to a southern invasion. Nothing wrong with it. Lee made some uh, terrible errors on this. And I'm not a Lee fan, as, as Al knows, for a lot of reasons, but there it is. While what goes on in Vicksburg, that's a Union offensive that yes. has taken down it. And he's, Grant split the South in half. And the, the deal is, you know, his greatest subordinate, Sherman, is sitting there saying, you showed me something. Uh, there's a, there's some good histories about that, about what Sherman going over to, to Grant after Grant's forces come from the uh, around Vicksburg and come in and, and, and then uh, close close the siege. He writes, congratulations, sir. You know, uh, you, and it's, it's like, OK, now we got him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah the, you see the difference on that? This is the man that Lincoln needed, and Lincoln had the smarts as president to say, all right, Ulysses, and then he makes him overall commander of the entire Union Army, but this is what Grant does. When he moves east, he takes over the Army of the Potomac. Meade's still supposedly the commander, but Ulysses S. Grant's running it, and he's got his, his number two, valiant number two, Sherman, out there running the Army of the West. And Take a, go at it, Sherman. They stayed in a pretty close contact. That's the military aspect of it. Lincoln had his team, and to his credit, he let these guys do it. Well, we've we've run out of time. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I think what we'll, I think what we'll do is we'll go ahead, Al. With that, Al. What I was what I was going to add was the other thing that's really important is that Grant was willing to learn. And, you know, if you read his memoirs, he's got a, an account of the, his first engagement in the war. And he's talking about how he's advancing on this position um, that is supposedly occupied by the Confederates. And he's getting 
he's basically literally, literally, almost literally saying, I'm getting like really nervous and upset and, and, you know, agonizing over this. And, and when he gets to the position, the Confederates have already left. And he says to himself, you know, they were doing the same thing. Yeah, no, I've read that. It's brilliant. Yeah. That's a great point, too, Al. Yeah, that he's point. learning. And after, if you think about it, he does make mistakes. There's no question about that. A cold harbor. <laughs> yeah, he, but he doesn't make the same mistake twice. Well, right. all right, Dan, I know well, we, we, we're running out of I time. Think, I think we, what we we'll do is uh, we'll label this one uh, part one, and uh, we'll we'll join up with you gentlemen later and because there's some other interesting especially the uh, MacArthur's and their disputes with presidents uh, that, that we need to cover. So, uh, Bring on Doug out, Doug. You know, right. Okay. Well, and his his father wasn't uh, no. much behind that. So I'll we, use the term arrogant to describe right. several. Right. Yes. We'll, uh, we'll pick those up here in a, in a bit, and uh, we'll talk to you both next time. Thanks, okay. Dan. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.